Um, thank you all for attending the Earthquake Science Center weekly seminar series. If you are new, welcome. If you'd like to be added to our email distribution group, please send us an email. <laughs> Seminars are recorded and mostly all talks are posted on the USGS Earthquake Science Center webpage. Closed caption can be turned on by clicking on the CC icon on the More tab at the top of the page. Attendees, please mute your mics and turn off your cameras until the Q&A session at the end of the talk. Submit your questions via the chat at any time or wait to turn on your camera and ask your questions during the Q&A session. Um, all right, so um, Ms. Linda McCrory and announcements for today, uh, October 25th. Uh, Linda McCrory and Patricia Elliott will be in Menlo Park on October 25th. And they have some open slots. If you'd like to speak with them and sign up, please see the email from Christina Hearn, the ESC Administrative Officer. Um, the USGS Town Hall is on Thursday, November 2nd, uh, from 2.30 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Microsoft Teams. And that is live. Join USGS senior leaders for updates related to budget, human capital, and more. The USGS and the Center for Accelerator Mass Spectrometry, Mass Spectrometry, oh, all right, let's try one more time. <laughs> Spectrometry at Lawrence Livermore National Lab are planning a joint workshop to discuss scientific areas ripe for future collaborations. The workshop is tentatively scheduled for late January, and those interested in um, attending are asked to RSVP by Wednesday, November 8th. See Christine Goulet's email from uh, last Wednesday for further details. And finally, the Not Ready for Primetime colloquium will occur tomorrow. Um, it will be somewhat of an open format, and the timing is um, tentatively three, it sounds like. So for Moffitt folks, that is um, relevant for you. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Kate for um, an introduction of our speaker today. Hi. So welcome, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Yang Chen. Uh, he comes to us with a bachelor's degree in me uh, mechanotronics, which is a word that was new to me, uh, from Changsha in Hunan province. He has a master's in robotics from Case Western in the Midwestern province of the U.S., and recently got his Ph.D. at Arizona State University in exploration system design. And he currently is a postdoc that's joint funded by Caltech and USGS. And... Um, he has started working and sort of, uh, we just came back, Devin and Jiang and I just came back from a couple days of field work. So um, I can tell you that uh, it's really exciting, the ideas he has and the ways he's going to push us in new directions to think about fragile geologic features. So he'll be talking about his past work and some future concepts today. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Kate, for the introduction and thank you everyone for having this presentation. So I'm gonna talk about my research of using robotics and machine learning for geoscience, and I will focus on photozone mapping and fragile geological feature analysis. So those are the two research directions um, for my research. And most of the pre presentation is from my previous work at ASU, and also I'll talk about my research plan uh, here at Caltech. So automated geoscience is a very uh, important concept for my, in my research. Automated geoscience is a practice that leverages robotics to automate data collection and machine learning to automate data processing, such that researchers can redirect their focus towards high-level calculative activities. If you can see this scientific method of geoscience research, usually we have geoscientific observations and we raise questions, we form hypotheses, 
but we have experimented design, data collection, and data processing. And if we are lucky, uh, we will uh, form or uh, or discover a general theories, and we can apply the theory to other senses, and um, or or use the theory to predict the future. And uh, the time-consuming parts are data collection and data processing. If we can use robots and machine learning to automate these two time-consuming parts, and the uh, and geoscientists can focus on other parts. So using robots for data collection is not new. Neither is using machine learning for data processing, but automated geoscience really highlight the relationship between automation, geoscience, and geoscientists. Photosome mapping, so far, most of research focused on large-scale features, such as photo trees, large uh, fractures, seismic landslides, and usually people use satellite imagery, INSAR, and airborne LIDAR that can provide some meter, meter, or even greater ground sampling resolution. But what about the small scale features? And we have secondary folds, triggered creeps, small fractures, rock cracks, offsets, uh, flipped rocks, photorelated vegetation, and seismic rock force. And if we want to uh, map them, if we want to study them, we need a very high resolution uh, centimeter or even millimeter ground sampling resolution. And those features are usually searched and mapped by uh, field work in a regional, in a small and a local region. So our understanding of small-scale geomorphic evidence remains limited in a comprehensive and big data context. context. If we can figure out a way to automatically search for and map those small-scale features, we can ask the following questions. How are the small-scale features specially distributed? How are they correlated with each other? With each other, and how are they correlated with large-scale features? How do they reflect ground motions? Can they hypothetically inform future ruptures? And how can they improve hazard analysis? So, in my previous work, I had opportunity to look at rocky photoscarps, and the development, the formation, and the development of rocky photoscarp involve three major processes. Initially, we have volcanic cooling. Uh, which forms those columnar joints, uh, which are those large boulders. And then uh, we have tectonic faulting, uh, which create displacements and also expose those large boulders to the surface. And um, the boulders on the, on the top may be toppled and fracture into small pieces. And the last process is referred as geomorphic fracturing. It's probably very obvious that there are many large rocks on rocky photoscarp. Our hypothesis is, hypothesis is rock distributions reflect the processes of rocky photoscarp development. Of course, one engineering challenge is how can we uh, map and detect uh, all these rocks because the lumber is too large. So I came up with a data processing pipeline uh, start, uh, which starts from a piloted aircraft system and um, using structure promotion, we, we, we can get an you know, also map and DEM, nothing new here. And then we have used deep learning, which is one branch of machine learning, uh, machine, machine learning models. And we have post data processing 
and then we create a semantic map. If you are familiar with GIS, as you can consider a semantic map as a shape file, which composed of a large number of polygon vectors, and each polygon vector describes the outline of a rock. And with a semantic with a semantic map, and we can do geomorphic analysis and, and trying to answer some scientific questions. And my research, uh, folk, one of my research focuses is applying uh, those cutting edge technologies uh, in geoscience for geoscience. And when I'm applying some machine learning model to this application, there are two challenges. One is uh, the first one is annotation map split splitting. That means when we have a, when we use deep learning model, we cannot train deep learning model with entire map because the map is too large and then you create a lot of that requires a lot of computation and memory for the deep learning model. What we usually do is we split a large map, a large high resolution map to uh, image tiles. At the same time, we also uh, split annotation map to annotation tiles. So annotation map is something uh, we draw those polygons on ARC or QGIS, and it provides a subset of training data set to the machine learning model to train it. And once we have the machine learning model, as we train the machine on the machine learning model, we can use it to to predict uh, other others other sites. And one challenge is we have a large annotation map. How can we split the large annotation map to uh, annotation tiles? The other one is once we have the well-trained machine learning model and we get the prediction tiles, and how can we merge them to get a prediction map? And those are the two two challenges that hasn't been uh, solved before. And uh, there are there are probably other ways you can you can kind of solve these these two challenges. And my focus, my research focus is uh, is to to come up come up algorithms and the data structure and then can efficiently solve these two problems because when we are when we are dealing with large scale uh, maps in remote sensing and the, the computation efficiency is very important. So some results here. From this 200 meter by 500 meter study area, we detected more than 200,000 rocks. And on this major photo scarf, there are um, more than 30,000 rocks. From uh, this semantic map, we can create uh, heat maps uh, showing uh, uh, rock or green size in meters and green size feet. Uh, we can get the histogram of green size because we we approximate each individual rock with uh, ellipse, and then we use the eccentricity of the ellipse to represent the narrowness of rock. So we can get uh, eccentricity distribution and shows the narrowness distribution of those rocks, and also uh, a rose diagram showing the rock orientation distributions. And then we study the correlation between uh, rock size distribution and uh, uh, photo scarp height. What we found is on a higher photo scarp, we have a uh, smaller median green size, and those are the rocks representing the rocks here at the bottom. That means a higher rock, higher photo scarp, there are smaller uh, those fractured uh, rocks, and those those smaller rocks are kind of with kind of caused by a geomorphic fracturing. So that means 
and kind of indicate higher photoscarp has uh, probably accumulated more geomorphic fracturing. And also we found a higher photoscarp and we found that there are larger boulders on the top. So, and those larger boulders are, are displaced by tectonic faulting. So, which also kind of indicate our higher photoscarp has accumulated more tectonic faulting. This is pro probably very obvious, but it's kind of the, the study is about the rock evidence of uh, both large scale fault geomorphic features and, uh, and processes, development and process. We also used, the, we also examined or inspected a particle transportation model. So the medium size of the rock, of the rocks are similar to a size of a football. If you think, if you can imagine you stand on the top of the rocky photoscarp and you throw a football, and ideally without, ideally without considering any friction, and the football will end up with an orientation that is parallel to the photoscarp trace. And we studied the rock orientation, uh, distribution, and its correlation with the, the photoscarp height to support such kind of uh, particle transportation model. And the rock is just a rock distribution is just a one geomorphic evidence of faulting. And there are, as we just mentioned, there are other features, for example, rock cracks and displaced rocks. This is from uh, our Turkey earthquake earlier this year, and the rock was, was here before. It's about a two meter height rock. And from the earthquake, the rock was displaced by uh, 1.5 to two meters. We also have triggered creep and uh, seismic rockfall, and you may uh, expect on uh, um, um, uh, trees the vegetation distributions uh, can be different. So, for my uh, research here at Caltech, I want to uh, kind of generalize those the rock the feature detection from rock. Detection to a more general uh, photo related feature detection. For example, uh, rock cracks, photo fractures, uh, triggered creep, and uh, vegetation. And uh, we are uh, thinking about, I mean, Kate, Devin, and uh, me, we are thinking about those uh, study area candidates around uh, Sultan Sea. As you can see, the fold uh, structures are quite complex, and this is also an area that is uh, with less well understood. And there are many from the seismicity, there are swarm of earthquakes. So if we, we will see if we have opportunity to so to have new earthquake and see how those features may how those fractures may uh, develop. And I constantly see such a strong uh, light show on Twitter, which is cool. Okay, we have John for entertainment, but what about for science? Uh, so it's a swarm UAV mission planning. This is quite important because after an earthquake, it's important to scale up, quickly scale up your mapping. Uh, for example, if we can find new fractures and how can we use these new fractures to guide the geologists in the field so they can have a better idea of the earthquake effects. 
Next is uh, technology development. Uh, next technology development is automate uh, augmented mapping. So previous work, I didn't assume we have any prior knowledge of the, the uh, of the study area, but that's not true because in most cases we have some prior knowledge. If we have those prior knowledge, for example, if we know the photo map, and then we can use this photo map to have uh, information guided path planning, which will can improve the uh, drone mapping efficiency. Also, we want to, so for this research photo zone mapping, we, we want to look at the the correlations between features and features and features and the ground motions. And if we like like we, if we do find those correlations, these strong correlations, and we can do active search and mapping. That means if we can find feature A and also feature A and feature B have strong correlations, and very likely we will find if we find feature A from the drone, and very likely the drone can also find uh, feature B nearby. Similar idea, if we find earthquake and we know the ground motion has some correlation with the, some features and when we have new earthquake, and we can probably uh, use this information to search uh, new new, new uh, ruptures. Okay, moving from photozone mapping to fragile geological features, I specifically look at the precariously balanced rocks. So those are the rocks that are balanced down, but are not attached to pedestal. So if you go to field, you see a PBR, and that might indicate for a while there hasn't been uh, large earthquakes. And also not just the PBRs on ours, we also found uh, PBRs on Mars. So those are the uh, photos from Mars 2020 rover. And there are many ways you can uh, study the, the fragility of PBR and one simple parameter, one intuitive parameter is minimum contact angle. So you can see after an earthquake, if a PBR is toppled, and then the, the minimum contact angle will increase. So this minimum contact angle is one parameter you can describe how fragile a PBR is. And a recent, a recent research by Trugman, and they are looking at this study area um, between the border of California and Nevada. So even before 2000, the uh, James Bruin found those PBRs, uh, it's quite uh, pretty and they're just balanced there. But after a recent earthquake, a magnitude six earthquake, and the PBRs are still there. But they also observed the rock falls. So what they found is okay, the PGA is uh, PGA of 0.3 uh, G is probably large enough to table a PBR, but they also found the duration is too small to table it. So to table a PBR, to table a PBR, you need both large PGA and duration. So that bring us bring us, that brings us a question. So what constitutes fragile geological features in a broader sense? So we know PBRs and rock pillars are typically considered as fragile geological features. But in, in this case, we have rock falls and, and but we didn't observe the table PBR. So our, how can we like, quantify the, the fragility of an area? Can we also come up with some idea to, to uh, quantify the fragility of a landslide and rock fall? 
And also previously, I mean, existing researchers only look at one or several individual specific PBRs, but there are many PBRs. And if we can map and um, if we can map and detect those large number of PBRs, how can a large number of FGFs offer insights into ground motions? Because if we have a few samples and when we uh, the samples might be biased. But if we look at a large distribution, that might be a better or more accurate representation. So in my previous work, I, I have this data processing pipeline. I have UAS survey and structure from motion. And we have also Mosaic. I use the same 2D rock detection uh, model to detect the PBRs also map. And then we use the bounding box to crop the, uh, the PBRs on point cloud. And we have another machine learning, deep learning model to do the rock, segment, rock segmentation. So this method is offboard method. What does it, that mean? So offboard method separates the data collection and data processing. So in, the, in this case, we have to uh, pre-plan a, fl a flight trajectory for the drone and the drone to collect the data. And then we can come back to office and then we can process the, the data on the laptop or survey. Or, or server. And the problem is, if we pre-plan a flight trajectory for the drone, and in some case, the minimum contact angle is very small, and the drone may miss this, uh, this very important basal contact information. So uh, to solve this problem, I come up with uh, onboard method. So we build this uh, customized UAV from scratch, this one has two companion computers. One is in charge of trajectory planning. The other one has an edge GPU that enables onboard machine learning in real time. An RTK GPS, and two stereo cameras, one for drone localization, the other one for drone mapping. So again, the offboard methods kind of separate the data processing and the data data collection and data processing and onboard method because we 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 equipped those very powerful computers and they can integrate data collection and data processing. So the idea is very straightforward. So we have a drone uh, do this do the survey from a high lawnmower survey from a high elevation. Once it can detect uh, the PBR from its camera and the real-time machine learning, and then it will move around to collect images from multiple perspectives to verify if it's a PBR or not. Because if we use machine learning, we may have false detections. This, this process to just verify the PBR candidates. And once the PBR is verified, it will fly closer to the PBR and conduct a circular motion to map it in real time. Cool. Once we can map a P once once we can map a PBRs, and then we need to study the dynamics of PBRs. And so I build a virtual shake robot and a mini uh, shake robot. I so essentially the, those are shake tables. I, I call it robots because I use the technologies and the concepts in robots like the control and perception model, and the, also use the, the tools in robotics to build those two uh, virtual and physical uh, shake tables. And you can see, and it's not adjusted. The, the, the model is pretty straightforward. The base near a uh, linear rail and a pedestal and a PBR, which is very 20 kilometers, actually 2.5 meter height. 
And also we can replace the pedestal with realistic terrains that are mapped by UAV. And uh, from the mini from the mini uh, shake table, and we can uh, use it to to uh, study the overturning of three D printed PBR. So this is a small uh, downsized three D printed PBR. Just just the purpose is to verify the simulation. Okay, I particularly look at the two processes. One is overturning. So this is a short term reaction from a PBR. So with the ground motion. If a PBR will topple, be not, be not, and, and the other one is a long-term, uh, long-term PBR response. We call a uh, large displacement. So once the PBR is toppled, and what the trajectory uh, it uh, can possibly have, and we have twelve parallel simulations here because PBRs are not symmetric. I mean the geometry of PBR is not symmetric. So we want to study the overturning response with with respect to different ground motions. So for those twelve so those for those twelve parallel simulations, they have different initial uh, PBR orientations. So what we learned is, uh, from overturn experiment, we can get an uh, upper bound ground motion constraint. So the red dots. So this is an overturning uh, response diagram. So the red dots represent the state status that PBR is toppled from the ground motion, and the blue dots re represent the balance the status. So if we go to field, if you find a PBR, that means if we find a PBR, that means the ground motion uh, is is not uh, hasn't ex uh, hasn't exceeded this this uh, this upper bound constraint this boundary. And from a large displacement experiment, and um, for example, if you go to field and you feel, you, you can see if you find a topple PBR, and if you also happen to know its trajectory, for example, if we see, if you know the trajectory is 30 meters, and then from this large displacement experiment, we know the ground motion, for example, this one has to be greater than this, this threshold. Otherwise, if it's smaller, it cannot really uh, result a trajectory that is 30 meter. So from the large displacement experiment, we can we can get a lower bound ground motion constraint. So with so we can combine overturning and a large displacement, we can have a better uh, upper bound and lower bound ground motion constraints uh, for for the uh, hazard analysis. And there are some limitations in my previous previous work. Uh, the offboard method, offboard off mapping method, because I used a much deep learning model to segment point clouds, and it is supervised machine learning models. That means I need annotations, and annotating point clouds is very different annotating images because annotating point clouds are very time consuming. And for the onboard mapping method, the flooded time is is quite a is quite a challenge. And also, I didn't consider obstacles because in reality, and there are there might be obstacles around PBR, for example, vegetations or a PBR that is very close to a wall. And a virtual shake robot only has one uh, one degree ground motion, and uh, this is one major uh, limitation. So for uh, for the PBR study, we are looking at the same study area that Jim uh, Broom and uh, Trugman looked at before. 
Uh, we just went there like uh, from from Friday to uh, no from Sunday to uh, and we come back. We came back yesterday night. <laughs> and so to improve the offboard method, I have this idea of somatic structure for motion. So structure for motion is not new, but how can we use create semantics for structure motions uh, products? So if we can combine deep learning and the structure for motion, we can get a point cloud that is that it. Uh, for each point is classified. And also, offward method has some limitations. It couldn't really save the basal contact information, but it still can provide us some information about the PBR candidates. So some of them, even them are not that fragile, but it can provide the candidates information for the onboard method. And then the onboard method can save the fight time and escape skip searching, skip the, the, the time for searching and only focus on the mapping of those PBR candidates. And also I'm particularly interested in uh, combining UAV LiDAR and structure for motion. So from UAV LiDAR, it can, uh, it can provide, it can provide good uh, accuracy about the, uh, about the uh, point cloud, but the resolutions are not very good. And also, it couldn't provide a good texture, and the precision is not very good because the the, the precision of the points might uh, floating around some centimeter. And the UAV structure for motion mapping system um, can provide a good precision, and also the texture is also good, but the quality is not very good. And also, it has problem of global deformation and local deformation. The global deformation can be corrected by ground control points. But if we want to study small scale features like those triggered trigger creep that only have de development of three to seven millimeters a year, we do need to, to fix the local deformation problem. So if we can combine LiDAR and structure for motion, and that can provide us uh, uh, maybe a new novel uh, mapping system. And also virtual shaker robot that kind of want to expand the uh, from one one degree ground motion to three degree ground motion. And in, you may see that can uh, there are many projects, many development, uh, technology development and but uh, projects, but there are uh, quite a large overlap between these two studies. For example, the semantic structure for motion can be used for photosome mapping and also fragile geological features. And this is one advantage of, of such kind of research. Once the technology is developed, we can, uh, we can easily transfer that, the technology to other domain. And project management. So we really have off-board off-board or offline method that use commercial drones, and we just use a drone to collect data, and then we focus on data processing. We also have onboard method, and onboard requires hardware development, and it's, it sounds uh, easy, but it's quite, um, there are many components, uh, mechanical design, electrical design, and you need to think about what sensors you need, you need to use, and the battery management, the communication, the communication between the UAV and the operator. And if you want to have multiple UAV mapping system, you also need to consider communication among drones. And the simulation test, because once you develop this uh, 
hardware and you just go to field, very likely you will, you will crash it. So, so usually we have, we, we test the drones and test the software in a simulation and we are ready and we have field test. So the offboard method, is, the offline method is more straightforward and the online method is require more technology development, but the, onboard, the online method is also promising and can do many things that the, the offboard method cannot do. Let's go back to this uh, automated geoscience because I'm very interested in uh, philosophy of some uh, of, uh, methodology. Uh, so all this start from um, geoscientific observations, but what if geoscientific observations are not accessible or interpretable? This sounds like an abstract question, but it's quite common. So before Mars rover, close range Mars observations are not accessible and volcanoes and deep oceans are not easily accessible. Nowadays, we have too much data. Is this too much data? We cannot really interpret them by person. So in this case, how can we how can we uh, handle those situations? So what I'm what the automated geoscience uh, is proposing is to use robots to make the science more accessible and use machine learning to make the data more interpretable. And then we kind of expanded the idea of automated geoscience to a general automated geoscience. So we can use robots and machine learning to uh, to assist uh, geoscientific observations. So I. Uh, for a short time, short term, I don't think we can like really use robots and machine learning to replace human observations, but you know, we can do, there's very high likelihood we can uh, use these tools to assist the observations. So this idea is we will have more exploration driven research. So sometimes we just have to explore more, collect more data and understand the data better and then we can ask more meaningful questions. And I'm particularly interested in uh, one application is disaster decision support system. This is different from early warning. So this is when we have data from satellites, uh, robots and sensor networks. How can we use this data and combine them to build a disaster decision support system? So once earthquake or tornado, hurricane occur, and how and then we can integrate this data and uh, and use that to assist uh, search and rescue and also maybe uh, observe uh, uh, recover weight in you know, long term. Uh, and that's my presentation. Thank you, uh, every. Thank you, everyone, and uh, I'm happy to take questions. Thank you so much. Um, so there's, there's people clapping here. <laughs> I guess well, uh, Moffat Menlo gets warmed up. If there's any questions in the room, yeah, yeah. yeah. So thanks for a really exciting presentation. I was wondering on the so the figure you showed where. Um, you had the PGA versus ratio PGA to PGB mm -hmm. toppling versus not. Mm -hmm. There was a clear line between whether a rock was going to topple or not at a given acceleration, for example. Mm -hmm. um, there's obviously some uncertainty in there. So you don't know <coughs> the contact between the rock and its pedestal yeah. and how strong it is. Um, but you're thinking about ways to address or include that kind of uncertainty in. Um, in these in these types of plots because 
part of the question goes to to understand um, what ground motions have happened in the past. Often we think about whether or not a uh, ground motion has been exceeded at the, and based on whether or not a, a fragile geologic feature is mm -hmm. possible. So, but if you have a bunch of fragile geologic features, maybe there's a probability that some fraction of them will be that yeah. larger picture of uncertainty. Yeah, so the first part is so this is a this is a re, uh, overturning response from uh, experiment from one ground motion direction. So in simulation, it's deterministic, and we can we can eventually we do need a probabilistic model if we want to incorporate it uh, for hazard analysis. And what we can do is we can do Monte Carlo, and for example, we can change the we can kind of like uh, slightly disturb the orientation a little bit, not very large distribution change, not large orientation change, but very small. And we do a Monte Carlo simulations and we can get, uh, uh, we can build a probabilistic model for overturning response. I, I didn't capture the later part. Is there also that a question? Not really. So I guess the other piece is just the sort of cementation between the the pedestal potentially and mm -hmm. how how you understand the range of possibilities. Yeah, it's very it's very difficult. The so the dynamics of PBR is very complex. It's definitely nonlinear, and it's even a small change in the contact might uh, hugely affect the fragility. And there are our, uh, research by uh, Christine Wittich. He did some work about the very sophisticated models of studying uh, how the contact, how most small change of contact affect the fragility. So I'm just uh, thinking, well, we can build we can build a very accurate or very complex model for individual PBRs. But if we really map a large number of PBR, let's see if we can map 100, 1,000 PBR, do we still need a very accurate model for individual PBR? Because if we have a large number of PBRs, maybe we will see. I don't know, but there is a very a good opportunity that we can that can provide a different perspective. Right. Yeah. So potential of um, repeat surveys to potentially look for creep along faults, yeah. scarves, Ridgecrest comes to mind. Do you think you can get to the resolution to maybe tease out whether there's um, slow deformation happening along those uh, surface exposures of ruptures and whatnot? Is that do you think that's possible with this technology? That's that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, we, I, I would join the FOB. Uh, campaign and we will look at some uh, fractures and um, from a high elevation, for example, if the drone, if the above ground level for the drone is uh, 30 meter, 30 meters, it can provide one centimeter resolution, which is not enough to capture uh, triggered creep. Mm -hmm. But if we can map the map the uh, exi existing uh, fractures, and and we can build a, 
a model, starting from what 3D model of that, and then we can use that to to improve the day, the drone mapping. So in that case, maybe the next time the drone can fly fly very close to the the mapped fractures and see get a high resolution image, and then maybe we can detect make uh, millimeter level of resolution uh, features. So it's the idea of like augmented augmented mapping. So yeah. based on a mapped a mapped uh, model, and then we can have a smarter way for the drone to plan a more efficient path. So they can focus on those damaging features, and then we will see how how we can push that. Yeah, we're gonna go to the Salt Sea. We'll be there uh, the weekend and Monday. This is first time there, so it'll be <laughs> informative. <laughs> so are there any questions uh, out there in the audience, the internet? Uh, yeah, this is Austin Elliott at Moffett Field. Um, thanks for the uh, really great talk. It's pretty exciting to see what you're doing here. Um, I, I'm curious about the, uh, you showed obviously this sort of like iterative dynamic surveying where the uh, robot, the drone goes out and identifies features that are of further interest and then focuses in on them. I'm curious what sort of sort of where that stands currently technologically and what you imagine to be the, um, how much adjustment and further training and in sort of manual input is required to adapt it to the pretty wide variety of scenarios you encounter, right? Different geometries of these things, different things that you'd, you know, different aspects of it that you'd rather it focus on, right? Maybe you need to get really right under the rock or maybe you need it from a different vantage point. How, I don't know, what do you, what do you see as the, um, how much work and how much variety exists in that sort of honing of the dynamics? Yeah, I mean, the the robotics and the machine learning technologies are developing very rapidly. Like last year, we have ChatGPT that's almost uh, changed. The, I personally changed my life, at least, of working. <laughs> and also, sometimes when I send out an email, I also ask ChatGPT. Uh, <laughs> so the idea is here. So most of previous uh, computer vision and perception models are based on supervised learning and they require large amount of training data. But um, here are new some models like Facebook where Meta, they come up with uh, a machine learning model that requires a very minimum training data set. So, so uh, and that, um, that means we in the future, we don't really, we don't really need to uh, collect some some uh, image to train the model so it can know, oh, that's a PBR. Maybe it can know based on the, the segmented image, you know, okay, and also some other geometric features, and know it's, that's a PBR. And also in terms of the, that's the perception, and in terms of the, the path planning, and we are just uh, talking about, actually it's not a new problem. So in robotics, people have studied view planning for a while. So it's like, what are the best uh, camera perspective the robot can cover, can cover the uh, 
to can cover the environment, cover the mapping space. So what what are the the best uh, configurations of the pers of the mapping perspectives? So I mean, those technologies are already there, but for geoscience studies or for 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 the survey, and we don't have those applications. Um, that's why I'm uh, interested in the application part. So we, how can we uh, adapt the existing technology to uh, those applications? Yeah, really cool. Thank you. Yeah. Anyone else well, out there? Oh, yeah. So Steve DeLong says, thanks for the excellent talk. Most of what you propose is uh, of limited spatial extent, as I'm sure makes sense for development. I wonder if the next logical step is to automate these ideas for long endurance, higher altitude drones, <clears throat> oh, I lost track, uh, or other platforms that can provide monitoring during post-event hazard cascades. So, you know, like an earthquake causes a fire. Mm. Uh, so that's yeah. probably what he means there. What are your thoughts about larger or a tornado causes, uh, I don't know, fire, could they cause fires? <laughs> what are your thoughts about larger spatial and temporal scale adaptive monitoring that could include real-time change detection? Yeah, I mean, larger scale application, I'm definitely interested in that. So that's why I'm thinking about some uh, multiple UAV mapping systems. So instead of just one UAV, if we can have a group of UAVs, how can we use them to, to uh, to increase the scale of the mapping. And uh, for other applications, actually this one, because I I, I, I talk about photosome mapping and fragile geological features because they are closely related to my uh, the story of my, uh, my dissertation. But um, during my PhD, I also did some work of, of tornado damage estimation. So still using the same 2D rock detection uh, data processing pipeline, but we use it to detect it uh, tornado damage features uh, like uh, tornado damage roofs and I'm still working with a uh, researcher at uh, NOAA so we are uh, looking at uh, tornado damage vegetation like fallen trees and they come up with ideas if we can detect the fallen trees and we can also estimate the the fallen tree direction and then we can build a vector because there are many trees okay then we can build a vector of those fallen trees and that can indicate the tornado direction and that's also important input model for tornado speed estimation so i do see because and that said like once the technology is developed it has it can be easily uh, transferred to other domains i do see there could be many other uh, applications potentially yeah and and also one idea you mentioned the this long elevation where the the drone capability. So I'm also think there are so most of the time I use the multi rotor multi rotor, uh, but there's also a vertical vertical takeoff. So then it combines multi rotor and fixed wing, and then it can provide a good uh, and it can improve like largely improve the the range and flight time of a drone. So that one is probably more suitable for large scale and a long range survey, but of course the cost is higher. So I'll see if I can find uh, good funding opportunities to support those research. <laughs> well, I have a last question if there's anyone, or if there's someone speak up if you're in um, Moffitt. Oh. Chime in. Go ahead. Uh, Wayne Thatcher, Moffitt. Um, 
first of all, I, I, this is way cool. I was just blown away by, by your presentation. I think we're all in shock here. Uh, I think you mentioned in passing some of one of the limitations uh, of the methodology, particularly for uh, uh, detecting and characterizing small scale features is uh, basically georeferencing. And you mentioned again in passing that I guess georeferencing you do now is with RTK, real-time kinematic GPS. Is that correct? Yeah, RTK is is something. Uh, yeah, I used it, and and we are also going to use it for our uh, our small-scale uh, feature. Okay, so my follow-up question, which is mm -hmm. really follows up on I think something you mentioned briefly, if you had more ground uh, GPS sites. Then the georeferencing would would be would be improved. Uh, have you any thoughts uh, about that? And also, you know, could you automate this so that your your drone parachutes uh, GPS sites to the ground? <laughs> <laughs> Base stations. <laughs> uh, I didn't really capture your first your first question. Can you repeat uh, that? Uh, if you would improve the georeferencing with mm -hmm. more ground GPS sites. Base stations. Yeah. Base yeah. Stations. Mm -hmm. uh, and and my my uh, what's the right word? Um, uh, provocative slash funny question was, uh, could you parachute uh, um, base stations uh, down from super base stations? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, for RTK GPS, um, conventionally, we need a base station and a mobile station. Mobile base station is like kind of you, you put on the rod, you fix it, and you wait maybe for uh, 10 to 30 minutes, and then the GPS signals can converge, and then you have a mobile station, mobile uh, station, and you mount on the drone, and then combine these two, you can provide a centimeter, one centimeter to uh, two centimeter resolution, and. Um, and but now there, I just found like a, a few days ago there are like a new generation of RTK that do, that does not require base station, which is quite a surprising. I don't know how how they did that, but there's some technology there. Um, um, uh, yeah, let me think. Yeah, I, I don't know, like a large RTK is is. Is one challenge, and also there are many other challenges like communication. I think that's a more more important in this case. Like how, for example, like in the field of work um, yesterday, so we are trying to map a very uh, the Sentinel bluff is very deep, and uh, and when the drone is flying to the other side of the slope, and the huge huge uh, blocks of um, boulders that block the radio, and then when the radio is blocked, and the drone have to take off and take off and come back to their home point. No, but I want to continue the mission and finish the mapping for me. But somehow, because the radio is disconnected, and then the drone have to take have to go back. So I think the communication, for example, how can we use the mobile communication communicate radio tower? to do a relay of communication. I think those are the more uh, challenging uh, tasks for uh, this technology development. Thank you. Yeah, sure. 
So are there um, other? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, this is Tim at Moffitt. Um, awesome talk, thank you. So, um, so Austin and I were looking at urban things in the Hayward Fall this weekend, and I'm wondering how technically and maybe like in terms of regulation challenging is to do this kind of mapping in urban environments um, as opposed to desert environments. That's that's definitely quite challenging. I don't know how I can personally work with FAI to to uh, to work on to work around those. Uh, airspace regulations for for some airspace no we cannot definitely fly for example those prohibited uh, uh airspace uh, for restricted airspace we can't get permissions and also if uh, if AA has a regulation that you cannot really uh, operate multiple drones at the same time so we have to we have to do something uh, i have because multiple uav research is not new I, but I don't know how much they, they have done with the field work. So I need to, uh, there's one professor I'm going to have a meeting uh, later today, and he did a lot of work and Caltech about drone, uh, and also we are we are thinking about multi-UAV uh, system. So of course I will see uh, what they have done about the multi-UAV system. I mean, how they work with, if how they work with the regulation, uh, uh, authorization and also how they deal with these regulations. I mean, logistics and regulations are are very important. And um, yeah, we have. I think we have to do have to do something. But it's a it's a very good question. Thanks. And I've got one question, this is Max Schneider at Moffitt. Uh, so thanks for Ziang for a really impressive talk. Um, I was really intrigued by your ideas about automated geoscience. And I, I share the idea that there's this challenge in having an excess of data that might make it even more difficult to actually explore that data to answer pressing research questions. Can you talk about how you would use machine learning for um, interpreting the massive amounts of data that your kind of work can collect, especially in light of, of the biases that um, machine learning methods often have? Yeah, for example, you know, Mars rover, and uh, there are many interesting uh, rocks on Mars, and uh, and they, they are building a, a data uh, a category or uh, no, uh, invent inventory of those rocks on Mars. But in, but one, when the when the when the rover is already moving, it already collected those those rocks. But when we see, they have to know to you only need to uh, you only need to register new rocks uh, that is not existed that does not exist in their existing database so they use so what they do is they have a mass rover and then they was they will have some operator to see a lot of missing a lot of images every day and then they need to say, okay, this is rock is new, and I need to put that into my database. But the problem is they have a large database, and the operators sometimes feel confused. Like, is this a rock we, we already registered? <laughs> so what they do is they have the machine learning is they have uh, it's called a novel novelty detection. So based on their existing database, they train a machine 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 learning model, and then when we see a new new rock. And it's not in the existing database, then they, they will register it. So in this case, we have to, we have to use machine learning and to learn 
And then we can know, okay, that's an interesting line, that's a new rock. And also like a uh, distributed uh, acoustic system. And they also use uh, machine learning to, to pick to pick the, the face. I don't know exactly uh, how they did that, but it's like an, the acoustic signals, they are, they are is complicated. And in, most of the time it's not interesting. And the, when earthquake occurs and the data can be different, but we cannot really monitor the data we, we, all the time. So they have a machine learning model to monitor the data and, and know, okay, that's a, that's a novelty, that's a novel signal we hasn't seen before. And then we can, uh, we can, uh, we can record it or we can inspect it. I mean, this, this methodology is new and in, I'm still thinking about what are the challenges and what are the opportunities there, because that can really change our way of thinking of the problems we can have. Maybe if we have large data, we can probably not just ask the conventional questions. We will ask the way of we are asking questions could be different. Awesome. I think on that very positive, inspiring note, we can wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks everybody for joining us and have a great Wednesday. Thank you everyone. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.